This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. Brands partner with ShipBob to scale from zero to a multi-million dollar company. Need global fulfillment centers and real-time inventory data? Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. We start this week talking about some big stories that are likely to shape the news in the coming weeks and months. The the deaths of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan over the weekend has renewed calls on President Biden to take much stronger action in the region. Over the weekend, Nikki Haley was out making her case for why she's still in the race for the Republican nomination. And Donald Trump's legal challenges are ever-present and changing, not least a huge award delivered by a jury in New York on Friday. $83.3 million. That's what former president and current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump owes author E. Jean Carroll. Here's what he said about it in Las Vegas in his first remarks after the decision. I'm the victim of it, but that's okay. I'm the victim of it, and it's my great honor. We get to that and what's happening with his other three court cases later on. But first, what should we keep an eye out for in the upcoming primary races? And how are Trump's legal troubles affecting his campaign and overall GOP strategy? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Let's meet our guests. Todd Zwillick is a political journalist and a voice you hear often on 1A. Todd, it's good to see you. Hi, Jen. And Sarah Longwell. She's a Republican pollster and strategist. She's also publisher of center-right news and opinion website The Bulwark and host of the Focus Group podcast. That's a Bulwark podcast about what voters think about politics, policy, and current events. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So just to recap, New Hampshire was another win for Trump in the GOP primary race. Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race right before the New Hampshire primary, leaving Nikki Haley as Trump's biggest challenger. And Trump beat her by 11 points in the Granite State. Here's what Republican National Committee Chief Ronna McDaniel told Fox News on Tuesday, the day after the New Hampshire primary. I'm looking at the math and the path going forward, and I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign But I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. 
and we need to make sure we beat Joe Biden. On Thursday, the Republican National Committee confirmed it was considering a resolution declaring Trump the party's presumptive nominee. Trump later posted on social media, quote, I feel for the sake of party unity that they should not go forward with this plan, but that I should do it the old-fashioned way and finish the process off at the ballot box. Sarah, how much weight does the RNC's position hold at this point in the primary race? Very little. Um, I mean, this is really about... Donald Trump and his dominance with the voters. Um, What the RNC does, I mean, first of all, I'm sure Donald Trump wanted the RNC to float the idea so that he could then say magnanimously, uh, no, no, no. Um, But the RNC has simply become a vehicle for Donald Trump and has been for some time. Um, And I think that Trump, the way that he will, I think, clinch uh, this nomination, even though he sort of already has, is to obviously beat Nikki Haley in her home state. And I do think Rana, um, who I disagree with about basically everything, but I agree with her analysis that the race is basically over and there is no path or no math. Donald Trump has locked up uh, just about every significant endorsement in South Carolina, which is tough for Nikki Haley since this is the state that she was the governor of. Um, this is a place where you know she would – Uh, I think, in a different political world, uh, do very well and would be counting on that. Um, And it's just there's not been a single poll that doesn't have her within, uh, you know, 30 points of him, Uh, maybe maybe the high 20s. But this is just this is unfortunately a very good state for Donald Trump and not as good a state for Nikki Haley. I will say one thing in her defense, which is that she is finally looks like she's starting to campaign against Donald Trump Mm. after months and months of uh, sort of soft peddling um, a and only running against Ron DeSantis, uh, she is now going hard at him. And uh, I'm not sure that that's going to make an enormous difference, but it may mean that she, um, you know, makes this a little bit more of a fight uh, than people had originally thought, but not the kind where she ends up winning. Well, I'm thinking back to the first primary debate, the first GOP primary debate, and at that point, taking away from it that she was really running in a a general election campaign during a primary. And what I'm hearing you say, Sarah, is that 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 maybe hasn't played out well for her. Yes. Well, I don't think anybody ran a real campaign against Donald Trump, who was part of this primary process. Um, You know, this is, I just saw Nikki Haley, for example, for the first time, acknowledge that uh, the jury in the E. Jean Carroll you know, case made uh, a choice and that this was – this is a, a bad for Donald Trump. But Donald Trump throughout the course of this primary has had uh, multiple indictments against him and none of his challengers, purported challengers, uh, made much hay about it. In fact, they defended him. Um, everybody has been so captured and afraid of Donald Trump's very fervent base of voters that even after watching 2016, even after watching 2020, uh, you know, so many years later, nobody has figured out how to run against him. And so they all ran these very tepid, um, non-combative races against him because they feel like, you know, going hard at him uh, earns them sort of the ire of of his base. Um, but it looks like Nikki Haley is on the verge right now of burning the boats. I think she understands perhaps something that she didn't going into this, which is that the Republican Party has changed to the point where someone like her no longer has a chance. The voters do not want 
pre-Trump politicians who sound like the Republicans of 2013 and 14. And I think as she's realizing that, she's using the opportunity just to really take the gloves off, which is good. Yeah, and and, and the only exception to that I can think of is perhaps uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who seemed to be most pointed in his attacks against Trump. Todd, Nevada's up next, but the way the primary election works in Nevada looks different from other states. It's a little complicated. What happens there? People have forgotten about Nevada. Nevadans hadn't. I I don't mean to say that they're not important, but everybody is looking forward to South Carolina. Of course, Nevada is weird, dysfunctional, and messed up in terms of its primary. That's the only way I can describe it. There was a lot of dysfunction in the caucus after the 2000 election. And Nevada, just like Iowa, remember all those screw-ups with the Democratic Mm -hmm. caucus and they didn't count it right and there was a lot of chaos? That A version of that happened in Nevada too. After that, Nevada decided to split off and have a primary. So the Republicans in Nevada didn't go along with that. What does that mean? You now have two races. There's an official Republican primary That's coming up on Tuesday. That's the state running a primary. Republicans have their own private caucus that's after that. And here's the thing. You can't run in both. You can run in one or the other. You have to choose. Nikki Haley is on the ballot for the primary. Donald Trump is on the ballot for the caucus. And by the way, only the caucus counts, according to the party, for assigning the delegates, the uh, delegates, winner take all. So there's sort of like in two separate adjoining Mm -hmm. rooms in the hallway. Um, Nikki Haley hasn't really campaigned there. Donald Trump stopped by just over the weekend, as you mentioned. So it's not going to tell us a whole lot about anything except of the dysfunction, not only of Nevada, but also the insistence of the Republican base. And in this case, the pro-Trump Republican base in Nevada is very strong for simply not playing by the rules, setting their own rules and setting up a system that coronates Donald Trump, which is, which is essentially what they're doing in their small state. Well, Sarah, it seems like this aligns with you saying the GOP has really just become the party of Donald Trump. What do you make of Nevada's de- decision to hold a caucus, the GOP's decision to hold a caucus alongside the state's primary? Well, I think Todd's right. I mean, this is a party who has just decided to roll over for Donald Trump. I remember in 2020, it was shocking at the time, but now it seems just a prelude to everything else we've seen where the party for the first time abandoned having a platform altogether and simply delivered a few lines saying that the party uh, supports Donald Trump and that's it. Um, And that's what the party is now. And I think, you know, back in the end of – after the 2022 elections where Donald Trump's candidates wildly underperformed and Donald Trump kind of came out and announced his presidency to a a bored-looking room of half-hearted supporters, there was a sense that maybe Donald Trump was finally done. Um, But I don't – I think that people have continued to not understand the depth of his relationship to a certain – uh, a, a large, actually, cohort of Republican voters for whom Donald Trump is the only person that they're interested in. Um, they but, but, they but believe Sarah, that I, this country yeah. – Right. I just want to point out, you know, if, if Donald Trump wins his party's nomination, it will be for a single term. So what, what does that mean for the GOP post-Trump? And what does it mean for the voters who are not casting votes for him in these primaries? They're voting for Nikki Haley. Well, on the second question, I think that it means um, that Donald Trump is going to have a really tough general election. I know that Biden looks very weak now, but I do think that once Donald Trump becomes the nominee, uh, another thing that 
people have not quite clocked yet is how weak he is with a the segment of of sort of old school Republican voters who cannot bear to see this guy come back again. Um, and so, yeah, what does it mean for the party, though? I mean, the party is never going back to the one that it was before. Uh, and I hope that, as you said, it's only one term of Donald Trump. Uh, but he showed uh, last time that he had no intention of leaving uh, after uh, he was after he lost the election. And um, I would be very worried about that were he to become the nominee for president in 2024. Or sorry, were he to win the presidency in 2024. We're going to head to a quick break. But coming up, Trump cemented his lead for the GOP nomination after winning the New Hampshire primary. But what do his four court cases mean for the rest of the GOP race? Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from CBC Podcasts. The Secret Life of Canada is a history podcast about the terrible, hilarious, dirty, and wonderful history of Canada. Listen everywhere you get your podcasts. Let's go back to Trump's influence for a moment. Now, Todd, Trump isn't president and he isn't the official GOP nominee, but he still has massive sway over Congress. On Friday, it looked like the Senate might have a bipartisan immigration bill. Then on Saturday, Trump spoke about it. What happened? Trump tried to kill it, mm-hmm. and he may succeed. We're going to find out in the next couple of hours or days if he succeeds. It looks like it's dead because the House Republican Conference, which is 100 percent in the throes of Trump, everything that Sarah told you a minute ago about this party being the party of Trump and in the throes of Trump, is amplified logarithmically in the House Republican Conference. It is ultra MAGA. Um, so on their behalf and on his own behalf, look, when – when you when fund this is all tied in with funding for Ukraine, when Ukraine's desperate need to defend itself against Russia came up, and President Biden requested many many billions of dollars to help Ukraine defend itself, Republicans saw an opportunity. Give us everything we want on the border. There's a border crisis going on. It's on Fox News every day. The problems are real. They're not fake. There are thousands and thousands of people showing up at the border, and it's major politics, especially on the Republican side. They saw an opportunity. All those attempts to get comprehensive immigration reform over the last 20 years, grand bargains between border security and a pathway to citizenship or considerations for DACA or immigrant visas, all of that can go out the window. Give us everything we want or we're going to 
we're going to back out on Ukraine. We're going to let Vladimir Putin have his way with Ukraine. That was the subtext of what they demanded. So the Senate went to work and said, this is a terrible situation, but sure, we'll try it because there's also a political advantage for Joe Biden and Democrats. The border is bad. They would love to be seen to have a deal. The Senate really, really got to work. Some conservative Republicans, some moderate, uh, some liberal Democrats and moderate independents all went to work on this. They're getting close to a deal that may or may not ever pass the House. And then Donald Trump just said, don't do it. And they were – Republicans were pretty pretty explicit as to why. This issue that they've been hammering on for months and for years, uh, they – Trump basically decided, I want to run on this. I want to hammer Biden on this. Don't solve the problem now. I'd rather have the issue. Mitch McConnell acknowledged as much in public, acknowledged as much to Republican senators in a very acrimonious meeting last week. So the Senate may still get a deal. This will go, if they do, let's say, and they can cobble together 60 votes, we'll see. It would go to the House. And Mike Johnson, the speaker, who says he's for Ukraine funding, but also knows that he's leading a conference that deposes speakers when they don't do Trump's will. I present to you Kevin McCarthy. I point to his portrait on the wall and Mm -hmm. say, if you oppose Trump in front of these people, this is what happens. So the prospects for a deal here are very, very grim, not impossible, but very grim because Trump killed it. But this raises a broader question. Um, Right now we have Israel's war on Hamas, Russia's war on Ukraine, U.S. troops being targeted in the Middle East. Domestic policy often shapes presidential races, but foreign policy will be a major challenge for whoever wins in 2024. I mean, how do you see foreign policy shaping this race, both at the primary yeah. level and in the general election? Well, so, so far, it's playing very little level, a uh, very um, uh, uh, not much of a level at all that's, that's perceptible on the Republican side. It hasn't been a major issue in the Republican Party to the extent that there have really been issues at all, aside from attacking Donald Trump or stepping up to the plate and not attacking him. So it hasn't really been much, much uh, of an issue. Usually, foreign policy in a general election becomes a bigger issue if there's a crisis. So I point you to the death, as you mentioned, of three U.S. service persons in Jordan, Houthi bombing of commercial ships in uh, in the Red Sea, and attempts by Iranian-backed proxies to escalate this war. So right now, it's a, it's a simmer, right? A very, very kind of a moderate simmer. Should it become crisis level in a general election, you can then see how it would very much affect people's thinking about the way forward. But I will say something else. In the Democratic primary, there isn't much of a Democratic primary, but it has exposed, especially the war against Hamas and uh, the war between Israel and Hamas, um, a, a significant weakness for Joe Biden. Progressive liberals on his left are angry and dissatisfied about um, U.S. support for Israel, especially given the number of civilian deaths, the refusal to call for a ceasefire. You, you, everybody knows the story here, I think. Mm-hmm. And even though it's not a primary issue because Joe Biden is the nominee, it does display a weakness that if people are upset enough that they stay home, he needs those people to be – they don't have to be excited. They don't have to be enthusiastic and but swinging from the rafters. It- they got to come out. Yeah, and yeah. if they if they if they shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes and say I'm not coming out for this guy and sort of give of 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 a vote by proxy to Trump. That's a major problem for Biden. So Sarah, I want to talk about Trump's cases and how that's affecting uh, his primary race, but what issues do Republican voters care about right now? And and how are they aligning with 
the platforms of the candidates they're choosing from. Yeah, I mean, well, just on the note of foreign policy very quickly, nothing has changed more in the Republican Party over the last 20 years than its posture on sort of American leadership abroad. Uh, it the, the voters have decided that isolationism is much more uh, what they're looking for from their leaders. Uh, Ukraine, Nikki Haley has been sort of a staunch defender of helping Ukraine, and that is not as popular as it once was um, with voters. Uh, and the base of the party has just changed on, on that issue a lot. The other issue that is dominant is immigration. Uh, that is the almost the number one thing you hear from voters. Um, oftentimes, though, the, the economy is also uh, top of mind for people. Uh, you hear that across the board, sort of left, right, and center. Uh, people have had for a long time, obviously, concerns about inflation, uh, the cost of prices at the grocery store, at the gas pump. Uh, that tends to be the things they talk about the most. But the level of urgency and um, frustration over the issue at the border uh, is just the thing that keeps people coming back to Trump. They want to hear somebody talk really tough uh, about the border and say that, you know, building the wall was never a policy proposal exactly. It was more of a posture on how seriously he was going to take immigration, which is what these voters wanted to hear from them. But more than anything else, what these Republican voters want is somebody who is going to be strong. You hear voters talk all the times in terms of strength and weakness. Um, they, uh, I think somewhat unfairly, uh, believe that Nikki Haley is weak and that Donald Trump is strong uh, and that he will sort of save the country, which they believe is sort of in a catastrophic place. Sarah, your thoughts on how Trump's legal troubles are shaping his campaign. He's facing 91 criminal counts across four different court cases. They're connected to his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, hoarding classified documents, falsifying business records. How is that shaping things for him? Well, when it comes to the primary, the court cases have done nothing but help him. Um, there has been for a long time something I've observed in the focus groups that I would call the rally round Trump effect. Um, the more that people try to quote unquote get him, that's what you hear sort of voters say a lot, that they're trying to get him because they're afraid of him, because he's disruptive to the establishment, he's disruptive to the system. And I think that um, the fact that when Trump, Trump has very much been able to sort of attach his own attacks on himself and his own personal grievance to the grievances of these Republican voters. And so they sort of feel like they're in it with him and they come to his defense. Um, that, I think, though, changes. That dynamic changes as you get toward the general election because you have a lot of these more swing voters, college-educated suburban voters, who are saying in polls, and I hear them say it in focus groups, that, you know, if Trump is convicted of a crime, they don't want to vote for somebody who's been convicted. Um, that being said, you know, people talk a lot about the conviction as the ultimate uh, game changer, but there's also a chance that he gets acquitted. Uh, in one of these cases, um, or that they don't move forward at all in a timely, you know, in, in enough fast enough to make a difference in the general election. But you know, should he be acquitted, um, you know, because one of the things about the voters in these court cases is there's so many, the volume and scale is just so intense that average voters can't tell them apart. They don't know which which one is which and which one matters more. And so it ends up being kind of white noise to them. And so until there's a real development like a conviction or acquittal, I'm not sure people will pay determinative attention. They will know that they're going on, but they won't be able to say whether or not it's going to actually impact their vote. 
Well, Sarah, I know we've got to let you go. That's Sarah Longwell. She's a Republican pollster and strategist. She's also publisher of center-right news and opinion website, The Bulwark. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Now, let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Mary McCord is the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University. And she joins us, she joins us from Washington, D.C. Mary, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Jen. Now, there was a significant development in a civil case. On Friday, a federal jury in Manhattan ordered Donald Trump to pay more than $83 million to author E. Jean Carroll in her second defamation trial against him. This is now on top of the $5 million he was ordered to pay her after a jury decided the first defamation suit in her favor. Carroll was seeking at least $10 million in damages. So $5 million to $83 million. That's a, that's a big jump. Mary, why such a large penalty this time around? Well, a significant portion of this most recent judgment was attributable to punitive damages, $65 million worth. And that's that required the jury to find, and the jury did find, that uh, Mr. Trump's statements back in June of 2019 that when he made his defamatory statements about E. Jean Carroll, he did so maliciously, out of hatred, ill will, spite, vindictively, or in wanton, reckless, or willful disregard of Ms. Carroll's rights. That's the finding the jury had to make in order to award punitive damages. The jury then decided that amount, and they clearly thought that what Mr. Trump had done met that criteria, and it's sending really a message of punishment to try to prevent him from doing it again. And I will note that this is a jury who sat through a trial. This is not the same jury that sat through his first defamation trial last year. This is a totally new jury, but they still heard Mr. Trump mumbling loudly at the uh, table where he was sitting, um, heard him briefly testify, heard him talking really still, defaming Ms. Carroll, even right there in that courtroom, mumbling things like, I've never met the woman, right? And that these kind of, that this uh, civil case is, you know, unfair and he's the victim. So I feel like this jury not only was making its decision based on certainly all of the evidence in front of them, but also Mr. Trump's own actions right there in court, which showed that even to this date, he has no respect, not not only for Ms. Carroll, but also for the courts of law. This is a man who had already been found liable once, not only for sexually assaulting Ms. Carroll in the first trial last year, but for defaming her. Mm-hmm. And here we are again, defaming with him fi- being found liable for defaming her, this time to the tune of... $83 million. Now, on Thursday, uh, Trump briefly took the stand in his defense, as Mary mentioned. Todd, walk us through the brief moments when he spoke in this case and, and why it's significant that he spoke in this trial at all. Well, he said very, very little at all. I mean, was on the stand for only a matter of minutes. Said very little because the the, the contours of what he was allowed to say was heavily restricted by the judge. Mary can speak to this uh, much more professionally than I can. But basically, the judge in this case, Judge Kaplan, made it clear to Trump and his lawyers, the facts of this case are not in dispute. They were tried by that other jury that Mary mentioned. You may not say that you didn't sexually assault her. You may not say that you don't know her. You may not say this is a witch hunt. Those things are out of bounds. Those facts have been tried and decided. We are here to decide penalties. So the questioning was extremely brief. The the contents of it weren't super notable if I'm if I'm being honest. Trump's body language as reported there were no cameras in the courtroom but as Mary described of his 
shifting around in his seat. He got up and stormed out of the courtroom a little bit later during summations, which the which the jury saw. So those may have been far more important. And the, and the thing I'll say about that $83 million that you mentioned and the size of that verdict, they were $65 million was punitive, as Mary said. But why is that number so big? A big part of the reason why that number is so big is that the law provides, and and E. Jean Carroll's lawyers told the jury, the number has to be big enough to make him stop. The guy's super rich, so he's got so much money that a million-dollar verdict is like, eh, he doesn't miss it. I'd miss it. You would probably oh, yeah. miss it. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> he, he won't miss it. So it's got to be big enough to make a dent. It's got to be big enough that somebody who has shown over and over and over that he doesn't care, has no respect for these decisions, and will keep poking, prodding judges until they discipline him. He's playing the victim. He wants to be sanctioned because he thinks it helps him politically. So the number has to be big enough to actually matter, and that might point you to why $83 million is so large. We got this question from Rich in Texas. Who says, when will Trump actually be forced to write the check? And Jay emailed, what will happen if Trump doesn't pay his debt to Carol? So, Mary, let's start with the first one. What mechanism is in place to force the former president to pay this money? So he will either have a certain amount of time uh, by which to pay that money, or he may take an appeal. And of course, he's saying he is going to appeal this. And he has, in fact, appealed the the judgment of the jury in his first trial. And in order to take an appeal in a civil case like this, uh, which delays the having to pay the damages, you have to either put that full amount of the damages into a court account to sit there and hold in case you lose your appeal and then have to pay the money. Uh, and that's to make sure you don't you know, move your money around, get rid of it, make it so that you wouldn't have it available, or you have to put up a bond um, and by paying down, you know, some portion of the money and then be under a bond, a legal agreement to pay the remaining portion. So he, in the first trial on appeal, he put up as cash the five-something million dollars that he was uh, a judge to have to pay to E. Jean Carroll, and that is sitting in a court account while he undergoes that appeal. If he decides to appeal this one, he'll have to either put up the $83.3 million in cash or do it by virtue of a bond. Once these appeals are decided, if the, the jury's uh, verdicts are affirmed, then he will have to pay these amounts to E. Jean Carroll. And if he does not, then the, the uh, Ms. Carroll, through her attorneys, will seek enforcement actions against him, and there could be additional penalties. Let's take a quick pause here. Still to come, what's happening with Trump's legal case a bit further south? We talk about that after the break. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. 
Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from T.A., who writes, Another factor supporting Haley staying in the race is the fact that Trump may be convicted in some of these cases. What will his status as a candidate be at that point? Then Haley would be the only one left standing. Todd, why might Trump's trials affect Haley's decision to stay in the race or not? A lot of this is about timing. You know, back in 1960, sorry to digress, but back in (laughs) 1960, Lyndon Johnson Mm -hmm. was wanted to run for president. He waited too long. He missed his shot. He knew it wasn't going to happen for him. And he got invited (laughs) to be on the vice presidential ticket with John Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson wasn't interested in being vice president, but he had to balance two things, get on the vice presidential ticket or run for president in eight years, I have no chance of winning. But if I get on the ticket with Kennedy, you know, let me do some back of the envelope calculations. He could die in office. He could resign. This has happened in history. My chances of becoming president are better if I kind of hang in, even doing something I don't want to do. I only tell you that history because I think it's a really good analogy for maybe part of the calculation for what Nikki Haley is doing right now. There are so many unknowns with Donald Trump. Sarah mentioned it earlier in the program. 30%, 20%, 25% of Republicans say they wouldn't vote for Donald Trump if he's convicted of a crime. Maybe he'll be convicted before the election. I don't know if the number is really that high. But if 10% of Republicans refuse to support Donald Trump because he's a convicted felon, say, for trying to overturn uh, the 2020 election, he can't win. He cannot win. Also, Uh, You know, between now and South Carolina, Nikki Haley knows, and I think this is part of the reason why her attacks are starting to ramp up. Can she win a a, a face-to-face brawl with Donald Trump in front of the Republican base? No, she cannot. But there's a lot of bad news coming for Donald Trump between now and then. He just had an $83.3 million verdict. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is about to decide on Donald Trump's uh, immunity claims, which Mary can speak to um, very expertly. Judge Ngoron in Manhattan is about to decide a case that is probably going to take away Donald Trump's ability to do business at all in New York and potentially cost him $300, $350 million in uh, disgorgement for his fraud, his and his company's fraudulent behavior. We probably won't see trials in other cases, but there's a lot of bad news coming for Donald Trump. Don't forget about the 14th Amendment. Nobody has an expectation that the Supreme Court is going to kick Donald Trump off the ballot, but there's no way to know exactly how that case goes. The Supreme Court could say, look, Donald Trump can run, but he can't serve as president. Mm-hmm. What what would happen then? And Nikki Haley knows that Nikki Haley knows that that there's a lot of yeah. things can happen here. Yeah, hang I, in. I mean, Mary, that takes us to this question about presidential immunity. On January 18th, Trump said that a U.S. president quote must have complete and total presidential immunity. Trump's lawyers made a final written request this month to federal appeals court to grant him immunity from federal charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. First, when are we expecting a decision from the appeals court? We are literally expecting that decision any day now. I think tomorrow will be three weeks since the argument in the case. It's a case where the three judges on the panel had ordered highly expedited briefing and argument. I mean, this case was briefed right over the holidays with very, very short time frames for each of the parties to brief, and the argument was held just within days of the last brief. So I think many of us who watch that court closely, and I've practiced for decades in front of that court, actually thought we might have a ruling 
ruling by now. Uh, however, we are talking about three judges who have to reach agreement on the language of that ruling, and I suspect they would prefer to have a single opinion that they all agree with than sort of three separate opinions, even if the result was the same of those opinions, but they were based on different rationale. It would be stronger in terms of how uh, further review by the U.S. Supreme Court might um, take place. It would be stronger if it's one opinion that they all three agree to. So that could happen at any minute. And let's just assume for uh, purposes of playing this out that the the court decides that Mr. Trump does not have absolute presidential immunity from for his criminal acts, which is what most of us who listen closely to the argument and read the briefings think the result will be. Uh, then the question is, will Mr. Trump take an appeal first to the full D.C. court? That's called the en banc court. When you lose in front of a three-judge panel, you can ask the entire court, all of the active judges on that court, to rehear the case. That's called en banc review. Or will he ask for the U.S. Supreme Court to take it? Or will he play, you know, try to again delay by doing both of these one after the other? Um, technically, he'll have 45 days to seek on banc review. And after that is denied, assuming it's denied, he would have 90 days to seek Supreme Court review. So you can just do the, you know, math and look at the calendar and see that that takes us pretty far into the spring. However, the D.C. Circuit could say to him, we're going to issue the mandate, which is the order sending this case back to the lower court, to the district court judge, Tanya Chutkin, for her to go ahead and prepare for trial. We're going to issue that mandate in seven days or two weeks, which would mean that if Trump wants to avoid being back before the district court and going to trial, he would have to hasten his appeal. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of balls in the air in terms of the timing right now. Um, but that decision will be a significant one. And, and as soon as it comes down, we'll start to have an idea of sort of how this timing might play out. Well, I mean, Todd, as a political reporter trying to follow the ins and outs of the court cases and what it means for both the primary race and the general election, you've got to have questions. Timing. Timing, yeah. timing, timing, timing. It's really the most important questions are about timing. Will the trial, will the questions, will the public be exposed to the facts of the case before they go into vote? That has always really been the question. It looks like uh, in the uh, classified documents and obstruction, everybody forgets about the obstruction, mm -hmm. but the obstruction case in federal court in Florida, that that will not happen before the election. There's been significant delay there, and we're going to find out more about that. Georgia's a big sprawling Rico case won't happen before the election. But this one that Mary is talking about still has a very good chance. And I'd, I'd love to ask Mary about that timing. By the way, what Mary is not telling you <laughs> is that on her podcast, which is the best legal podcast about Trump called Prosecuting Donald Trump, it's the best one. And I, I say that in all honesty. She predicted long ago that this decision, this immunity decision would happen like in a week. And Mary, you're way over. You're way over. You missed it by a I long know. shot. She's you had way over. to bring that up. <laughs> Just hold, hold your feet to the fire. But, but on the timing, Mary's talking about the mandate and the timing. And Mary, it makes me want to ask you, you described the mandate and how quickly the court will say to Donald Trump, let's get this going. Let's get this going. Do you have a feeling in your elbow bone right now how far beyond the, the, the first week of March trial date, the January? January 6th case, the federal case, the Tanya, Ch the Tanya Chutkin case will pro is likely to slip. What's a, what's a realistic time frame here? 
So, you know, it all depends on whether the Supreme Court takes review or not. I do think the the circuit will, you know, have a mandate, say it's going to issue the mandate maybe within two weeks, which means Trump will make a decision whether to seek en banc review first or go to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court takes accepts the case, I mean, we're going to buy at least a minimum of 60 days from that point, right? And so it's really about when does that happen? And if we just kind of look at the calendar, you know, that's not likely to happen for probably 30 days, assuming the court were to to rule right now. So we're kind of looking at, you know, 90 more days, I think. Although, you know, I'm really... I mean, there's so many variables here. Yeah. It's really hard to say. Look at how fast the um, Supreme Court took up the case of the 14th Amendment Section 3 disqualification issue and how quickly it scheduled briefing in that case, let's not forget, will be argued next Thursday, a week from Thursday on February 8th. Um, and they only just accepted that case in late December. So... You know, things could be move fast, but I, I see no possibility, uh, you know, of a March 4th mm -hmm. trial date. And so the question is, will it be 60 days later, 90 days later? I just hope it can it can start um, sometime, you know, in the spring. I want to get to the Georgia case in, in a moment, but really briefly, just zoom out for us big picture. I just want from both of you your perspective on, on the broader implications of this decision about presidential immunity for both our democracy and the powers any future president holds. Mary, briefly? Yeah, well, you know, Trump's position is really pretty outrageous. People will recall that he was at, his attorney was asked during argument, under your position, could a president order SEAL Team 6 to execute a political appoint, uh, opponent? And the response was, what he called it a qualified yes, but it was a yes. It was, he would be immune from that unless he were first impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate, because his position is impeachment and conviction by the Senate is a prerequisite to uh, to criminal prosecution of a president for something which he, that he believes is within the president's official acts. That's a very extreme position. And if you think about that and what it means for the country and for democracy and, you know, whether the presidency becomes a monarchy and an authoritarian one at that, it's a really, really dangerous mm -hmm. position. Todd? One of the things that Judge Tanya Chutkin said when this issue came before her in the trial court before it got kicked up to the appeals court is that um, if presidents are inhibited by the idea that breaking the law might get them in trouble, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. One of Donald Trump's other arguments is that there will be a slippery slope effect. And Donald Trump has said this in public at his rallies. Presidents can't be shackled in this way to do the job. You have to be able to make the tough decisions. And if you're worried about prosecution, you won't make the tough decisions. First of all, that has – I mean we're 200 and I can't remember how many 40, 50 years into the republic – that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. Pre presidents haven't been uh, – that we know of um, ha haven't been uh, dissuaded from making the tough decisions because they're afraid of prosecution. In fact, it's probably been the opposite. And Judge Chutkin said that if a president is considering breaking the law in order to knowingly do something in his own interest or is considering activating SEAL Team, Sis SEAL Team 6 
to assassinate a political rival. If he pauses and decides maybe not to do that because he could go to jail, that's good for the country, not bad. Let's quickly turn to Georgia, where the former president is facing a trial over alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. The trial has been complicated by allegations about Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Those allegations were first made by one of Trump's co-defendants, Michael Roman. Now, Trump's lawyers claim that District Attorney Willis is in a romantic relationship with lead prosecutor Nathan Wade, who she appointed to the case. Willis responded to those allegations January 14th in a speech at Big Bethel AME Church in Atlanta. I appointed three special counsel, as is my right to do, paid them all the same hourly rate. They only attacked one. Mary, how could these allegations affect how the trial proceeds? Well, you know, technically, um, she she's absolutely right. She has authority under Georgia law to appoint special counsels. She appointed three. Um, and whether she's having a romantic relationship or not with one of them should not impact, right, the guilt or innocence of those who have been indicted for crimes related to the efforts to overturn the results in Georgia. However, the only way I think legally that this could affect it is if her appointment of Uh, Mr. Wade was done in a way to create a financial conflict of interest so that she purposefully said, I want to appoint you and pay you so that I can reap the benefits of the payments that um, the state is making to you as special counsel. That all is very much remains to be seen. I mean, there's nothing that prohibits her from having a romantic relationship. And I'll note, I don't think she's denied the romantic relationship, at least not in those remarks at the church. But we will hear from her on February 2nd in an actual written um, uh, filing that the judge in the case, the the criminal case, has ordered because he is going to have an evidentiary hearing about that, and that hearing will be February 15th. So it's really the legal issue is about whether there's a conflict. Um, It doesn't implicate the guilt or innocence of those indicted, but boy, is it a distraction, Mm -hmm. and it's a very unfortunate distraction from some really serious allegations uh, in that indictment. So there's going to be an evidentiary hearing about these allegations. Todd, on Friday, the Georgia State Senate created a special nine-person committee to investigate DA Willis. What's the end goal for this committee? To discredit her, I'm sure. Um, They do have jurisdiction over the appointment and conduct and federal funds spent through district attorney offices in the state of Georgia. So uh, this panel, I I think, is not technically directed toward her. It's to review state money being spent and conduct of district attorneys, but she's clearly the target. Um, They can't, uh, you know, they can't fire her. They can't prosecute her. They can publicly discredit her with their platform. And I think that's the, that's probably the ultimate goal. But I also don't know what they'll find. I don't know what she'll write in her brief on Friday. I don't know what she will say uh, in the hearing on February 15th before Judge McAfee or how this will shake out. I think that some people who've been watching this, some observers, lawyers, and people who I think it's it's fair to say are on the left have started to make rumblings. You know, maybe it's a good idea for Mr. Wade, given the the stink that's starting to bubble up around this, to maybe step aside and keep the case against Donald Trump and his alleged co-conspirators clean. Well, there will be lots more to talk about in the weeks and months ahead. That's Todd Zwillick. He's a political journalist and a voice you're familiar with from On 1A. And Mary McCord, she's the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University. Todd, Mary, thanks so much. Today's producer was Jorhalina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Thank you.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black History's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.